Welcome to the podcast, Inside Out. If this is your first time joining us, this is a story that you've arrived in the middle of. It's best to start at episode one. This is season two, My Life Inside a Federal Prison Camp. Season one is the truth is the first victim. And it would be best if you started season one, episode one, and worked your way through. New episodes drop every Sunday. We're so glad you're here. This is Inside Out. I'm your host, James Catledge. Welcome aboard. Okay, I thought this would be fun. Um, this is a bonus episode uh, for the holiday season here. Uh, I want you to know that inside uh, federal prison camp, this may be the case at Lowe's, Mediums, and USPs, but I'm not sure. I haven't been to all those places. But inside the camp, this is the way it went for us at Taft. So I spent one Christmas at Taft Correctional Institute, and I remember the guys kind of getting excited after Thanksgiving because they said every year, many of these men had been there, you know, six, seven, eight years at this camp. This is their home. And they had gotten uh, permission for each housing unit to compete for the best Christmas decorations. Now, our housing units are like warehouses. These things are like the size of maybe half of a Costco. And there's four housing units. And, of course, these things are filled with cubicles, bathrooms, two computer terminals, a microwave room, four TV rooms. It's, it's where you house uh, inmates. And nothing about it is comfortable. It's a concrete facility. But uh, this is, this is going to be fun. We're going to actually decorate our housing unit uh, for Christmas. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. These big, tough guys are going to decorate. So you'll find some guys are very, very creative. I mean, this is not my strong suit, but many, many inmates are extremely creative and get better every year. And so it's determined some of the guys got together and kind of voted on many of the options. And it's determined that we're going to do a Grinch Christmas in our housing unit. And uh, everybody can participate. There's probably, I don't know, 80 guys in our housing unit. So 80 guys in each housing unit. So we're all going to compete. And we take maybe a week. And there's construction paper. And there's glitter. And there's glue. And there's tape. And there's crayons. And there's... Uh, all, all sorts of things you could find at a Michael's supply store. Uh, somehow the prison has opened up cabinets that have all this Christmas stuff in it. And it turns into quite this festive energy um, as we approach the holiday here. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to participate in this. this. This seems like the funnest thing going. And our guys end up, and I'm no good at this. I'm just helping following instructions from some of these creative guys. But we end up with an upside down Christmas tree. It's a Grinch Christmas. We've got a fireplace built. We've got the Grinch hanging upside down in our fireplace. We've got fake presents all the way around this upside down tree. And it looks like a scene, which I'm going to post on the Inside Out Instagram account so you can kind of see it. I got permission to photograph it, which is very unusual to ever get photographs inside the housing unit. Matter of fact, they told me we don't normally allow pictures inside federal prison. It's kind of against the rules. But for this Christmas decoration, we'll let you take a picture or two. And of course, you pay for these pictures, but I thought they'd be great memories. So 
I take a few and I've posted them at the Instagram account so you can see it. So go there and you'll notice that it's private. Inside Out with James Catledge is a private Instagram account. So you'll need to request entry and then I'll, of course I'll accept you so that you can see these photographs. But uh, I go from, from uh, housing unit to housing unit looking at all the different decorations. And I'm telling you, it's elaborate. I mean, this is, this is not streamlined, uh, minimalist or efficiency decorations. This is extreme. This, this, this is the, these men and their children and their wives and their home must have just amazing sense of uh, decoration. Uh, their wives would be extremely proud of how good their husbands are at decorating. Uh, I'm blown away. I mean, every time I walk in the housing unit, it's kind of like our lobby. It's blown out with Christmas decorations. Well, the warden, the assistant warden, and and the director of our camp, they're voting on who wins. I mean, it's there, and uh, it's a big deal. They got clipboards, and there's a checklist of the different criteria under which they're measuring how good the decorations are from creativity to theme to quality to, I mean, really, they've obviously done this for a very long time. It's my first Christmas there, but uh, it's a big deal. So I love it. I mean, it literally is a happy energy inside this camp. And uh, I'll, I'll get to it here. You'll see the pictures, but it looks awesome. I mean, it, it is, it's, I'm proud of our decorations and our guys. We, it seems to me we've got the cre the most creative guys inside our housing unit, the A unit at Taft. Well, we win the dang thing. We win it. And uh, it's a huge cause for celebration. It seems like it got us some benefits. I'm trying to think of what it was, some type of prison extra benefits. I don't know if it's a candy bag or what we, it seems like we all got candy bags where it's like a brown bag full of all sorts of bizarre candy, nothing you could get at a 7-Eleven or a Circle K, but some weird candy on closeout at the dollar store. I don't know where the heck they get this stuff, but we all got this bag of candy and guys are trading for their bags and it's like a big pawn shop. Everybody trying to figure out how they can get rid of their bag and who'll pay the most for their bag and you know, they're going back and forth on who who's getting whose bag and who's buying whose bag. And it's crazy. But I think that was our prize was this Christmas bag full of bizarre candy. And uh, so anyway, that, that was Christmas at Taft. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, we also did the visitation room. And I volunteers, probably 10 of us volunteered for this, where we go up and spend the day hanging ornaments from the roof and hanging the two Christmas trees. They wanted uh, us to be able to host our families in there for visitation throughout the month of December and be able to take photographs in front of the Christmas tree. And, of course, I'll post that picture, too, because my family all comes every month. And so I'll post it of me, my mom, and the kids uh, who all came to see me during the Christmas holidays in front of that tree. We took a great picture. But that was fun. We spent all day, you know, decorating with wreaths and Christmas trees and fake presents and putting the star on the tree and all the ornaments and the nativity scene. I mean, you'd be surprised. The Bureau of Prisons, you know, cut us loose for these holidays and let us really do a bang-up job, and, and everybody kind of gets into it. So I thought you'd be surprised to hear that. I sure was. It was a surprise to live through it. You know what you realize? I'm sitting in visitation one day, and I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, you know, all these big tough guys in here, with all these sweet families, their children, their wives, their mothers, 
or they're visiting their inmate's son or husband, right? And I'm thinking, these, there's, these guys are just like me. They're family men. They love their kids. They love their spouse. Their moms come to see them. And uh, it's just unfortunate they're separated for this brief time uh, from their family. And I remember having a conversation with my mother about this. And uh, the very first time she came to visit, you know, she's so worried about you. You know, she's worried about me. And she says, she says, James, you're in here with all these guys. Oh, my God, you've got no business being here. This is, this is not where you should be. This is, son, I, I, I can't. It's hard for me to leave you here. It's uh, difficult to see you in here with all these men. You know, a lot of these guys have tattoos and stuff. People judge somebody with a face tattoo, right? It's, uh, it's, it's kind of a harsh look. Well, there's a lot of tattoos in prison. And as mom's looking around the room, you know, she's frightened because I don't really have as part of my business circle a lot of face tattooed friends. But you come to look past all that. You come to understand who these men really are when you live with them 24-7. You come to realize they're a heck of a lot like you. And we're all dressed the same. We all want the same things. Nobody in there is drunk. Nobody in there is on drugs. Nobody in there is uh, anything but themselves and would like to re return to their families. And so you end up kind of seeing with fresh eyes humanity. And uh, I remember in the visitation room specifically having this conversation with my mother. I said, you know, Mom, look around this room. You, you're, you're kind of worried that I'm in here with all these guys. I want you to know that each one of these tables these wives and these mothers are saying the same thing. They're looking over here at this white guy and they're saying, oh my God, you're in here with this guy? What in the world did he do? Why is he in here? I can't believe you're in here with a guy like that. So the, the same thing that's in your mind is in the mind of these other great women and mothers and daughters. So I promise you, it's, it's not anything to be worked up with about. If you end up having to do any time, and I hope you don't, but if you know anybody that's doing time, go visit them. If you have a relative that's doing time, please go see them. If, if you're fortunate enough to not do time but meet somebody who has, please don't judge them. Understand that they're not the worst thing that's ever happened to them. Matter of fact, they're nothing like the worst thing that's ever happened to them. And they hope that you'll see with fresh eyes and see beyond the, the judgment, right? We all, we all could use a little bit of grace in our lives. And I remember just trying to reassure my mom that I promise you, these women are saying the same thing about me. They're looking over here going, what's that white guy up to? He, I bet he's a scumbag, isn't he? I, and they're saying the same thing. And you know what? Their, their husband or their father is straightening them out and saying, no, no, that's one of my best buddies. That guy and I walk the track together. That guy and I cover a lot of important ground together. That's my friend. And yeah, he's white, but he's my friend. And yeah, he's Mexican but he's my friend. And oh yeah, he's black and we love each other. We care about each other. We look after each other. That's my workout partner. Okay. So this is the kind of esprit de corps relationship that's being built inside there. And so anyway, I just, I just hope I can properly use my words to reveal to you that inside prison is just another glimpse at humanity. And uh, much like walking through a mall or a bus stop, uh, everybody's pretty much the same. They all want to do good. They, they really all want the best for you. They, they have their own worries and fears and concerns in this world. They're, they're loaded with all sorts of burdens they wish they didn't have. And yet they want the best. 
They want to have a great life. They want to be happy. They're, they're pursuing what's in their best interest. This is, this is just the, the uh, human experience. And whether you're in prison, mall, or the bus stop, it is the same. So anyway, that's it. I just wanted to share that with you. Christmas inside a federal facility. This is Inside Out with James Catledge. Thanks for being here. So typically on the weekends, I get to talk to my kids. I get to talk to Kendra. I talk to my mom throughout the week. But we are limited on our minutes. And so when we go to that phone bank, I try to do it when it's quiet. I've already had a run-in, of course, at the phones. I don't, I don't want to have a run-in. I certainly don't want to interrupt other men's phone calls. I understand the, the value and the treasure that a phone call with your family is. So it's, this is my phone call to my boy, Brandon. And this is uh, April, March, March of maybe February of 2020. And uh, my boys and I, both Alex and Brandon and Nathan, we, we discuss, they run, they run philosophy by me. They run theories by me, things they see on the internet. We, we kind of have that discussion. I trust their judgment. Well, on this night, and Brandon's got a really sharp mind. Brandon says to me, and this, remember, dad's in prison. And I'm on the phone with my son and I can't hold him and I can't, I can't comfort him. And he says, dad, are you seeing what's going on over in China? And I said, no, tell me what's going on in China. I mean, we're really out of, out of the mainstream. You know, we don't have the internet or anything. We, we catch the news, but we're not getting much. He says, dad, they're, they're locking towns down. He said, towns with 15 to 20 million people are locked in their houses and the police are in the streets and they can't come out. And there's some virus that's gone crazy and, and, and it's killing people. People are dying. He says, uh, so I ordered a gas mask. I said, what? He lives in Santa Monica, California. I said, Brandon, you ordered a gas mask? I said, tell me everything you can about what you know is going on in China. So he'd be, this is the first I've heard of the COVID-19 virus is my son, Brandon is informing me about what's going on in China. And he tells me about this lab and he tells me about the Wuhan. I've never even heard the word Wuhan before. But he's giving me all this information and it's kind of freaking me out a little bit. It almost sounds conspiratorial, you know, and I'm really not one to go for any of that stuff. If anything, I'm anti-conspiracy. I just don't think human beings are organized enough to do grand conspiracies. But this sounds crazy. So he's giving me all this insight. I said, what are you going to do with that gas mask? He goes, Dad, if that thing comes here, man, I don't want to die. You know, I want to survive. I'm thinking, my God, I'm, I'm stuck in a prison and my boy is worried about dying. This is terrible. Terrible. And so... My first reaction is maybe this is an overreaction and it may be, maybe I need to get some more research on this. And so I be, I call my mother when I hang up this phone and said, mom, get everything you can off the internet, print it out for me and mail it to me on COVID-19 in China. And so she sends me all this stuff and her visitation with me, we, we, she comes once a month and her visitation day with me is coming up like in, I think it's this next weekend. So it's like four or five days. And the next day, this is, this is after the call that night with my son, they tell us they're closing visitation. And then 
we're noticing that a lot of guys in the camp are like have the flu and they're sick. I don't have the flu, but a lot of guys do. I mean, like a lot of guys, like in, in our particular unit, housing unit, there's probably 20 guys laying in bed all day, literally sick and stuffed up and lungs, you know, they're breathing and you hear the phlegm and everything. And I'm thinking, man, this is weird. I wonder if it's got anything to do with, you know, China's a long ways from Taft. I, I know we didn't catch anything from the Wuhan area, but what the hell is this? Is this thing traveling the globe? And then, then of course, we've got this Cuomo fella in New York now starting to do daily press conferences, and he shut one of his cities down outside of New York, and and they're they're not letting anybody in or out. I'm thinking, okay, what is happening? I, you know, I'm close to 50 years old, and I've never seen or heard of anything like this in my lifetime. It just seems so extreme. Well, the prison tells us they're closing visitation until further notice. Now, the Bureau of Prisons is very good about making sure you're connected with your family. It's, I think it's part of just general psychological well-being. Uh, the, 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 pr the prisons nationwide, federally, are really good about this. So when you close visitation, you know, that's serious. You, you're cutting off fathers from their children. Mothers from their husbands, mothers from their boys, and um, and I, I I don't know when it's going to open back up. And this is like again, this is like February of 2020, and uh, all of you kind of know you know what was happening in your world about this time. So we start to get in the information about COVID 19, and we start to communicate with each other about my my little mail comes from my mother with all this facts and. We're, you know, the printouts and stuff, and I'm using printouts. I'm, I'm trying not to be a part of that inmate.com rumor mill. So we're discussing all the details about COVID-19 and SARS and what the hell is it. And and it's a little scary, to be honest with you, because we, we share space. We share computer keyboards. We share community bathrooms. We, 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 share, we share a dining hall together. We're, we're all up in each other's space in the... In the housing unit, I mean, this is really tough. I mean, we really can't escape uh, if there's a problem. We're going to all get sick. And I don't know if this is sick or dead, right? I, I, I still don't know. But they started to do a death count ticker on the news, like in the bottom right-hand corner of the Chiron on the ticker. The news channel started to show a death count. I'm thinking, okay, why would they start a death count unless death is certainty with this thing, right? And so, so we start to get the word that Gen Attorney General for the United States, who reports to Donald Trump, who's our president right now, that Attorney General Barr has sent a memo out. And the memo is dated March 19th. And the memo is he wants minimum risk federal inmates to be tested and evaluated for early release to serve the balance of their sentences in home confinement. And he's, the Attorney General has written this on, on Department of Justice letterhead, and he sent that to the director of the Bureau of Prisons. And my mother sends me a copy of this. A lot of the inmates have their family sending them copies. So we've got several copies of this thing. We read it. And then it, we're asking our counselors about it. What, what? And they don't know anything about it. They've not heard anything. We're we're getting it from you know the top of the country, 
but it's not trickling down to our facility. And so then, then March 24th memo comes out and it says, I'm urging you for the safety of the inmates to accelerate. There's a test called pattern, which it determines whether or not it's risky to let an inmate out. It, it's assessing their criminal behavior. It's assessing their, it's assessing their history and whether or not this is a good risk for the Bureau of Prisons to take. And so there's a minimum level, there's a low level, then there's a high. And of course, minimum is what Attorney General Barr is suggesting in the memo is eligible to be released. Not, not done with their sentence, but sent home to serve the balance of their sentence at home. And of course, we're all interested in that because home's got real food. Home's got the internet. Home's got my closet full of clothes. Home's got home's got a cell phone. Home's got a lot of stuff going on that I don't have right here. So home is delightful sounding. And so we start putting pressure on our case managers, our counselors. And of course, they're trying to figure it all out too. And they're, they're seeing these letterhead letters from the Department of Justice to the Bureau of Prisons, but they don't have any memos internally. And so we get word, it's probably a week later, that they're going to start testing all of us. And we get a little note on our pillow. I'll never forget coming in from the rec yard. You guys are getting sick. There's a lot of guys sick. And a little note on our pillow. It's like a, a, a cutout form that shows where we are, whether we're low or whether we're minimum. They, they've, it's, not a, it's not a psychological test. It's a test. They go look at our record, our central file, and they, they do the test against our documents. And then they declare, our counselor declares on this little slip of paper, whether we're minimum risk, whether we're low risk, whether we're high risk. And if we're low, minimum, if we're minimum, we're eligible to go home. Well, I've got a little note on my pillow that says I'm minimum. And I can't tell you this sense of joy because I've, I've only been in there a year. I've got a five-year sentence and I've, I've been in there one year. And, and frankly, I'm really settled in. I'm, I, I'm, I'm having a good experience. I've got good friends in there. I've got a nice routine. I, I, I've settled in. I've got my friends coming to see me. I've got my mother coming. I've got my children. I'm really settled in. But the idea that we could go home uh, this is almost too exciting, right? A lot of guys in there are feeling psychologically cynical about this. Like, I'll believe it when I see it, you know, a lot of that. There's a lot of that attitude in there. I, I, I didn't, I wasn't in long enough to feel that way. I, I was every day thinking if they would let me out of here, I'd be delighted <laughs> every day. So this little note's significant. So I take it to my counselor and I said, is this from you? She says, yes, you're, you're eligible. I said, what do we do? What do we do with this note? Who do we? He says, so we'll just have to sit back and wait. I don't know what we're waiting for. You know, I really don't know. Well, they start calling names on the PA system. And this is the unit manager. Uh, and I can't recall his name right now, but he's really kind of a jerkish personality. I mean, really a jerk. I'm not going to use his name because just in case he gets tuned in here, but he's a jerk. There's no doubt about it. He's one of the jerkier fellows I met. Uh, and he'd been in there a long time. And he has no care, concern, or respect for the inmates whatsoever. Well, he starts calling names over the PA to come to his office. He's not saying what it's about. But uh, uh, we're, we're all figuring out that every guy coming out of there has got a sheet of paper that's got 
the name and license plate of the people that are eligible to come and pick them up. And I'm thinking, my God, this is like the Willy Wonka golden ticket. And and so everybody starts saying this is the golden ticket. When you hear that name, it's the golden ticket. Well, I, I would say 40 guys get called over that intercom. Now, I know I've got the slip, but the guys getting called have been around a while. So they're, they're they, you know, they should go home. They've been, they've been in a lot longer. Well, sure enough, one afternoon, I hear my name and I just know in my heart, this is the Willy Wonka golden ticket. And I hustle over to his office and all my friends are like big eyes giving me high fives and fist bumps all the way. And I go in there and I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying not to smile because this guy's a jerk. I sit down, he looks at me and he says, you should not be in here. I said, well, you you call my name, you know, that's why why I'm in here. And he says, "Uh, no, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. Your name's on this list and it shouldn't be. I said, "Uh, okay, you know, I I, I don't really want to have an argument with this guy. He says, uh, somebody put you on this list. I said, okay, I, uh, who? He says, uh, I don't know who, but, but you're clearly getting some type of privileged treatment here. I said, I promise you, whoever it is, I'm grateful, but I don't, I don't believe that. I don't believe there's any privileged treatment happening here. And I think this COVID must be serious, and they're trying to get guys out of here who are eligible to go home. That's, you know, I'm just trying to give the guy my thinking on this. And he says, well, I'm going to fill this out for you. He goes, uh, he goes, we're closing this prison, by the way, not because of COVID, but because there's no more federal funding for this facility. We're closing it, and I'm transferring you out of here. I said, what? He said, yep, I'm transferring you tomorrow. I said, Honestly, I'm sitting there. That's what this guy says. Now, I've been here a year. I've got this place dialed in. I know, I know all my guys. These are my friends. He says, yeah, I'm transferring you out of here tomorrow. So get your stuff ready. Get ready to pack out because you're going to be on a bus out of here tomorrow. I said, where are you sending me? He goes, I'm not telling you that. He goes, you go anywhere in the United States. So I've got this Willy Wonka ticket that's got the license plate of my mother's vehicle and all this stuff on it. So I'm thinking, why would he transfer me other than to confuse the situation? Well, in the next episode, I'm going to tell you what happens next, but I do get transferred. Okay, let's get into this. Taft Prison is closing after 26 years of being open. Somehow, on my watch, in my little bit of time that I'm going to do, they're going to shut the thing down. So, they've, they've been shipping every day two, 300 people from the low prison, all of the United States. There's an airline that the Bureau of Prisons runs called Con Air. At least that's what we call it. <laughs> I'm not sure that's painted on the side. But Con Air transfers Bureau of Prison federal inmates all over the United States to different facilities. And there's a transfer center located in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, where Con Air lands the airplane on the runway, pulls up to the jetway, and inmates exit the jetway into the transfer center. Not into an airport, but literally exit the airplane out the jetway into the transfer center. So I've heard all the stories about inmates I've met coming into Taft who have been through the Oklahoma City Transfer Center. And apparently, not a bad place to stay for a little bit, but you, of course, are, you know, it's not your 
destinations. So you're not, you know, relationships, you're not able to establish friendships and, and allies and colleagues and all that stuff. It's just kind of a temporary holding pattern. And the, and the difficulty is BOP, Bureau of Prisons, BOP, they don't give you a lot of insight into where you're headed, where you're going, where you are. So you just got to kind of mysteriously sit back, relax, and take it all in. And when you get there, you realize, oh, we're in Oklahoma. Or when you get there, you realize, oh, we're at Taft. So it's transfer day at Taft. Transfer start at 2 a.m. So it's our turn. We get notified on the board up front in our housing unit that the following names will transfer tomorrow morning. And that means 2 a.m. My name is on the list. So I don't know anything about transfers. So I asked my buddy Greg, tell me all about it. So Greg's on the list too. We don't think we're going to the same place. Greg's got some insight. He thinks he's going to Oklahoma Transfer Center. We don't know where I'm going, but we think we're guessing that I'm going to Mendota, California, which is just north of Fresno, kind of out in the armpit of California. That's what I call it. It's just nothing there but stinky fertilizer and agricultural, you know, they're, whatever they're growing out there stinks. I can, I can tell you that. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not fragrant. Okay, so that's where I think I'm going. I pack my boxes, two boxes, and then I put a label on those boxes for my mother's address in Nevada. Because remember, I got the golden ticket. That golden ticket says somebody's going to pick me up and I'm leaving prison. And I don't know if they're picking me up at Mendota. I don't know if they're picking me up at some other destination the BOP has assigned me to. It's really not clear. But either way, my boxes that I pack, and I'm kind of relieved about this, because when you send the boxes home, it means the inmate is probably headed home too. And that's exciting. Very exciting. I mean, it's almost, uh, I feel a little muted in my enthusiasm about how exciting it was to put the label from my mom's address on these boxes. And by the way, the only thing in these boxes is my personal stuff. Everything else I've given away to other inmates. And most inmates don't want it because they've got to transfer too because they're closing the prison. So you're, you're, you're minimizing things. You're now tossing stuff away. So I'm, I'm sending letters home. I'm sending some of my clothes home. I'm sending uh, some sneakers home. I'm sending photographs home, you know, stuff like that. So it's one box going home and, and uh, another box headed with me. So one box is going wherever I'm going to the transfer and the other box is headed to mom's house. So 2 a.m. comes, I'm really nervous. I, I really don't know what this is about. As soon as we get in, it's like the guards we know are now like they've shifted to some other beast mode and they're not talking. They're, they're kind of mean. They're kind of rough. There's some yelling going on. Do this, do this, do that. Come over here, check this, sign this, look for this. You know, there's a list. They're sitting behind tables. They're trying to sort out who's getting on what bus because all of us are leaving that we're on that list today. And, and the whole visitation room is full. Chairs are been organized where it looks like we're all facing in the same direction. And uh, I've got my shoelaces in my sneakers, which, by the way, that's kind of recommended. So you can kind of move quickly or swiftly or if anything goes down, you're in a position to defend yourself. Well, I see all the inmates starting to take their shoelaces out of their shoes. So I asked the guy next to me, and we're sitting in alphabetical order, by the way. So it's not, it's not necessarily a friend of mine. 
He says, you got to take your shoelaces out. I said, what if I don't take them out? He says, well, they'll make you take them out. They'll make a scene while you're holding everything up, getting on the bus while you take them out. I said, why are we taking them out? This is because this is where escapes occur. Escapes occur during transfers. It's the most risky moment in an inmate's and a guard's career and, and life is the transfer because you got all the inmates, you got fewer guards, you're outside the prison where there's locks and doors and it's just a vulnerability. So everybody's really on high alert and, 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 and kind of in an angry mode. So I decided to pull the shoelaces out because I don't want to be causing a scene for the other inmates delaying anything. So we pull them out. Uh, we're now, believe it or not, we've got to be handcuffed and shackled at the waist and ankles. So there's this, these iron, literally uh, shackles that go around your ankles. Then there's a chain between them and it's not very long. So your gait or your stride has to be really minimized here or you'll trip and fall. And by the way, it's not good to trip and fall when you're uh, shackled because your hands are at your waist and they're handcuffed and then they're bolted to a waist chain so they're not out away from your body. They're close to your body. So you got your arms down your side. Your, your wrists are kind of at your belly button and your ankles. So if you start to fall, you don't even have, you can't even put your hands out and protect your face, your teeth, or you're, you're just going to do a face plant, break your nose probably, and knock your front teeth out. So no kidding around. Every step you take has got to be very smart. And there's some old men in there whose steps without shackles aren't so good. And I'm worried about them. I really am. And I'm kind of looking after those guys, looking out, like, where are they? I'm looking for them. And uh, I'm trying to kind of hustle myself into line near them because I'm thinking, my God, the, these guys could actually fall. Because I, I am in really good shape walking 10 miles a day uh, for almost a year now. And I've got good footing, good balance. Uh, but I feel unsteady with this shackled situation. So we start shuffling out the door. And of course, it feels like you're supposed to hurry because they're yelling at you. And I'm not going to hurry. I've just made a decision. I'm going to walk safely. And the guys in front and behind. So I've got a little gap in front of me because the guy in front's walking faster than me. Uh, the guy behind me is right up on me. And I said, look, dude, I'm not walking any faster. This is how it's going to go. So we've got about 50 yards, maybe 60 yards to the bus. And they're directing traffic. You give them your name, they tell you which bus to get on. So I get on a bus with a bunch of guys I know. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa, what if we got to go to the bathroom? How's that work? I'm in an orange jumpsuit. You know, the prison-looking jumpsuit like the when you first, day you first checked in. Um, I'm shackled up. Are they going to unshackle me to go to the bathroom? That, that seems unsafe. And I'm thinking, they may not. So how far is this drive? And, I'm, you know, and of course, when you start thinking that, you've got to go to the bathroom instantly. Instantly. And so this has been discussed the night before, like minimizing all the inmates know who have done this before, minimize fluid intake, minimize food intake at dinner. So a lot of the guys uh, eat their eat their dinner earlier, go to the restroom, and then don't eat another thing so that their stomach's empty, as empty as it can be, and they're, they're minimizing fluid. But sure enough, as I start thinking about this, I'm thinking, boy, I got to go. But... That's not going to happen. So I'm just praying to God that wherever we're going is within a couple of hours. Because if this thing's a six, eight, 12 hour drive, like if we're headed to Sheridan, Oregon, or, you know, golly, this is going to be bad. And there's, again, there are older men here 
who are probably going to wet their pants and it's going to be on this bus and heaven forbid anything else they might do in their pants or in their jumpsuit. So we board, we get on it. it I got to tell you, you got to, you got to psychologically disappear. You got to mostly go somewhere else. It's so that's what I did. I closed my eyes, laid back, started playing golf. I started playing golf courses I'm familiar with and hitting shots and missing shots and chipping and putting. I'd get in a sand bunker. I would play the, the holes in order, like slow down and really play them in order and miss shots into bunkers, uh, hit sand shots, rake the bunker. I mean, I would literally play the round in my mind. And I could, I could, I could, an hour could slip by pretty quick just with my eyes closed. And so I literally would discipline my mind on this trip to do this type of activity. So I played a lot of good golf courses on my way to Mendota. As we exit, we realize we're headed to Mendota. We get to the prison. There's three buses. We're all going to be loaded into that prison. And uh, when I come back, I'll give you the details of what happens as we pull our buses into the Mendota medium federal facility. Not a camp, not a low, but a medium security facility, which is very different.